Hello, everyone, and welcome to What About the Canadians, a podcast about Canadian history. My name's Shauna. And my name is Ashley, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we'll be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we will examine the battles the Canadians served in. All right, we're on mini-sode number three, Ash, and today... Ashley has no idea what I'm going to no. be talking about because she thought I was talking about something else <laughs> and she was I wrong. <laughs> I thought the same thing last time too. <laughs> so I'm the one that's apparently very clueless. <laughs> All right. I'm going to be teaching everybody a history lesson here. I mean, hopefully we've been doing that kind of the whole way through, but this one is actually, I think it's going to be a surprise for a lot of people. Oh. Yeah. Do tell, Shauna. It's something I didn't know anything about, so I'm, I'm interested to share. So, Ash, how long do you think there have been German settlers in Canada? Oh. Oh, okay. Um... I would think for quite some time. I'm going to guess, I don't know, 1880s, 1890s? No. Over 300 years there have been Germans settling in Canada. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, Germany as a country or an empire has really only been called Germany since Otto von Bismarck, he kind of unified all the Prussian states and the German-speaking kingdoms, and he put them all together. But, I mean, there's been Germanic people for ever, really. Um, that's a big generalization, but there's been Germanic people forever. But they began to settle in Canada as early as 1604, when Germanic Swiss settlers came here with others to help colonize Acadia. So it wasn't just, Acadia wasn't just French, it was German-Swiss as well. And Acadia, for those that don't know, were, it was basically the maritime provinces at that time, that geographical region. So it's been a long time. Yeah, I had no clue, because you don't learn that in school. It's always (laughs) English, French... Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, (laughs) English and French. (laughs) So the Germans coming here, and I I shouldn't just focus on the Germans, but because this talk is going to lead elsewhere, but there's been like ebbs and flows of German immigration. So, you know, it'd come in waves and they would settle generally together um, based on their dialect or their religion because there are differences between the Germanic people. But there was pretty big communities in Nova Scotia and Quebec and Ontario. And of course, as colonization spread west, German immigrants went there too. And between 1874 and 1911, there were 152,000 Germans settled in the west. And by the beginning of World War I, there were over 100 German communities in the west as well. So they had a pretty big presence all throughout Canada. Uh, So, I mean, British were obviously dominant here throughout the whole country, but Germans weren't a minority. 
No, I think I remember kind of briefly mentioning that in the first episode. I think they were maybe 5% of the population. Yeah, yeah. World I mean, War One. Yeah, that's pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Considering, um, and a lot of them had a lot of the German people had been here longer than the British citizens, so I mean, I think they had just as much claim as a lot of the British did, except you know their monarchy and all that. But they they were here anyway. That's the big point. So you'd think that because they had been here so long, a lot of them had been here so long, everybody would have gotten along during the war, right? Because they weren't like you know, praise in Germany necessarily. <laughs> they were just here and they were trying to make a living and trying to have a life here. But that unfortunately was not the case. Yeah, not even <laughs> no. close. <laughs> no. So the first time I actually knew anything about like people being pretty mean to German people here um, was watching Passchendaele. And this was like years ago because I have refused to watch that movie so far in this stint of our podcast because I want to save it for our Passchendaele episode. But I do remember, (laughs) I do remember them being pretty mean to the mean female character. And if it gets found out that her, her parents were German and so they vandalize her house and she loses her job and she's pretty much ostracized. And at one point the main recruiting officer in the movie, sorry, spoilers if somebody hasn't seen it. (laughs) I don't know. It's, a it's an old there. movie. <laughs> yeah, That's true. It's, it's an old it's movie. It's an old movie. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, well, it's Canadian, and I don't blame you for not seeing it. <laughs> that is not the supposed like the promotion you're supposed to give, Sean. It's a great movie, but you know, it wasn't a blockbuster. I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't like wrong. saving Private Ryan or something. <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> But at one point, the main recruiting officer in Calgary threatens to send her to an internment camp. That's right. So that's where our episode led me. Ah. My research led me is the internment camps in Canada. I knew nothing about them. I had heard about uh, Second World War internment camps, like the Japanese ones. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything about the World War One camps. I didn't even, I didn't know that they existed. So that's where we're headed. Nice. Yeah. It's really not nice at all. But, you know, we'll, we'll well, go with that. Y- well, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, nice. I get to learn something. This is exciting. <laughs> It is actually, it's something that, you know, when you get to learn something totally new that you think you should know everything about this, it's, it's cool. One thing I wanted to point out, this is mostly for you, Ashley, like our listeners might not care about this, but, um, for those of you who don't know, I am a big genealogy nerd and I have, and Ashley is too, and we've researched our tree pretty far back. Um, but at one point in the censuses, sensei? No, censuses. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but one branch of our family uh, says that they're German for a good period of time. Uh, they weren't actually German. They were Dutch. And they had been in America since the 1600s. So I don't know where they got their information. 
but they said that they were German. Until the 1911, no wait, sorry, the 1911 census said German. But conveniently, the 1916 census said Irish. Hmm. And I don't know for sure if that's like a coincidence or if they were like, oh, no, 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 we're not German. Mm -mm. Don't want you to think that. But I, I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting, but it's also interesting. Why wouldn't they just say they were Dutch? <laughs> well, I mean, the the lines between Germany and Holland have been blurred for a very long time. So, and uh, because our family had been like they'd come to North America in the 1600s to um, New Amsterdam, actually. So, I I'm guessing that the 300 years that passed or you know 200 by the time they were saying german whenever that was it probably got lost along the way fair enough let's go with the fight in irish yeah (laughs) (laughs) well i'm fine being dutch or german or irish or whatever but i did think that right at that time period they went from being german to irish yeah i don't think that was a coincidence no, I don't think so either. And they were in small town Alberta, so they probably didn't want that label at all. No. But it's not cool. like the family name is is an Irish name, so I don't know. Anyway, so we'll get away from the genealogy rabbit hole because I could go down that forever. So, internment camps, back to that. Really, what we're talking about is blatant, contagious, prejudice. <laughs> in these internment camps, there's really no other, there's no nice label for it. It's prejudice and it's horrible. And there were actually 8,000 civilians in POWs sent to these camps during World War I. Um, the anti-German propaganda fueled it. And there were other actions on top of the internment camps as well for these citizens. It wasn't just the internment camps. And it seemed to me through my research that it that it was really easy to convince your neighbors how terrible Germans were. Like it, it oh. was propaganda. They just shoved it down their throat. And I'm sure that there was a bit of like othering throughout the communities anyway. Like, oh, that group, they don't speak English. They speak German. So we're just going to separate ourselves from each other because we don't speak the same language or, you know. I mean, racism was a huge thing back then. But, you know, they, the Canadian government really pushed that propaganda. And the people turned on the, these Germans and they called them enemy aliens. That was the big term, term then. And there was, um, a, in Belgium at the beginning of the war, there were some pretty bad things that the German soldiers did and mainly to women and children. And the propaganda machines ran with that and they exploited it and they made it so much worse than it probably was. Um, So they really focused on that, saying, you know, the Germans do this and that and I won't get into it now, but it was pretty bad. And they focused on martyr figures like Edith Cavill, who was a British nurse in Belgium at the beginning of the war. And she was executed by the Germans for helping Allied soldiers escape. And that was really pushed. I mean, I don't think it was good that the Germans executed her, but to to further the war effort by 
by making her a martyr is and turning mm-hmm. people against civilians is really a terrible thing to do. So, but even before the propaganda started and immediately at the outbreak of war, pretty much, Canada passed the War Measures Act, which allowed the federal cabinet to do pretty much whatever they wanted to keep Canadians safe is what they were saying. And it meant that they could pass laws without having to worry about Parliament and including ones that affected civil liberties. But actually, even before that, the government passed the Proclamation Respecting Immigrants of German or Austro-Hungarian Nationality. And this meant that any citizens from enemy nations that were not naturalized or considered enemy illegal residents or enemy aliens um, allowed for the arrest and detention of Canadians from German Germany or Austria-Hungary if there were reasonable grounds to believe they were engaged or attempting to engage in espionage or acts of hostile nature, or giving or attempting to give information to the enemy, or assisting or attempting to assist the enemy. That was a bit of a mouthful, but basically if you were German or from Austria-Hungary, you were hooped. No kidding. Like, how do you define reasonable? We all know that that's a blurred line. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, I'm sure they could say, oh, you sent this letter back to Germany or to Austria-Hungary. That could be considered attempting to assist the enemy. I like how it's like, yeah, small town, like German farmer sends letter to the Kaiser. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can never be too careful. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) So this could mean anything from actual espionage, which was never proven with any of the citizens interred, to missing a check-in because they made all these German and Austria-Hungary citizens check into checkpoints within the town or the city that they were near. Or if a person refused to register and they knew that they were from Germany or Austria-Hungary. I have trouble with Austria-Hungary. I always want to say Austro-Hungarian. It just sounds better to me. (laughs) But anyway, if they had that heritage and they refused to register, then they could be arrested. So it wasn't a good time to be from any of those countries. I was really shocked that there were camps in Canada at this time. Um, But what shocked me most, and Ashley, I know you will never guess this, and nobody out there will. Well, not nobody, but most people out there won't. The majority of the 8,579 prisoners were actually Ukrainian. You know, I did know that. Did you know that? Oh, darn. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was so I was shocked when I read that. I was literally just Googling it. Because oh. I, I was just like, no, I think I think the Ukraines were interned. <laughs> you were cheating. I'm sorry. Quit cheating. I did know. Sorry. Spoiler. <laughs> I ruined your surprise. You did. You could have at least faked it. They can't see us. so for those of you who don't know ashley (laughs) 
Sorry. I do have a history degree, Shauna. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the Ukraine at that time was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Those people were considered enemy aliens. And that they interred 5,954 Ukrainians, 2,009 Germans, 205 Turks, and 99 Bulgarians. Um, They also, though, interned 81 women and 156 children that were dependents of those men. And a lot of them came voluntarily, though, I'm guessing mostly because they had no means to support themselves. Like, they... The government seized their assets or their houses were destroyed because of horrible people vandalizing them or they just couldn't live in their towns anymore because of the racism going on. So they they followed their their men to these camps. There were 24 camps spread across Canada. Um, And if you were sent to the camp, like I said, your property was seized and generally it wasn't returned after these men were released. Uh, The men were made to do manual labor on public projects a lot of the time, like the golf course in Banff, Alberta, and major roadways and a lot of logging operations. Mm. So if you go play golf in Banff, that was built by Ukrainian internees. So the largest camp in Canada was the Amherst Camp in Nova Scotia. But this camp was a little bit different because it was actually mostly housing POWs instead of citizens, probably because it was on the East Coast and they didn't have to move the POWs that far. Um, It had a peak population of 854 people. And Leon Trotsky was held there for a time in 1917 when he was trying to sail from New York to Russia. Really? Yeah, his ship docked in Halifax and... The British authorities decided he was dangerous for the Allies because of his involvement in a 1905 revolutionary movement. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't have nice things to say about the camp, unfortunately. But no, well, I'm sure they weren't like a, like a five-star hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a big place either. They had all these 800 men. Um, in the old Canadian car and foundry malleable ironworks factory. And it was a building that was only 400 meters long by 30 meters wide. I mean, they, they touted it like it wasn't too bad. The men could play sports and do crafts and other artistic endeavors like music and theater. So, you know, they were kind of being like, oh, it's summer camp. You know, you can do all these great things while you're here. We just got to keep an eye on you. But uh, really, the government just ignored the rules that were set out by the Hague Convention. Um, These rules were set out in 1907, and they were the international rules for treatment of POWs and citizens and how they should be treated differently. So really, the reality was that nobody was treated well. The Canadian government ignored these rules and did whatever they wanted. The work was hard, the conditions were poor, and the meals were menial. On June 24th in 1915, a few of the German sailors that were held there attempted to escape at the Amherst camp. They attempted to escape. One man named Fritz Klaus, who started the altercation by assaulting a guard, was shot and killed. 
and four other men were injured. And after the war, the POWs were sent back to Germany, including the bodies of 13 prisoners that died there. And the camp closed on September 27th, 1919. Hmm. That was a year after the war ended. Yep. They uh, obviously hadn't worked out these arrangements for the men yet, so they just kept them until they could. Right. Those poor people. Yeah, it was terrible, and there were a lot of issues in the camps. In total, 107 prisoners died throughout all the camps across the whole period of the war. Mm -hmm. Um, Six were shot trying to escape, and the rest died of disease, injuries, and suicide. It was a pretty depressing place all around. Beyond the humanitarian issues that these camps had, there were also economic issues that went along with interning thousands of people. Um, I, I briefly mentioned the Hague Convention earlier that set out these rules, and Canada was a signatory of these rules, so they should have abided by them. Um, they had to, and these rules set out that they had to give the prisoners a certain amount of calories per day, and they weren't allowed to give them or to make them do forced labor. And they actually had to pay the prisoners. Mm. Uh, Canada said, nope. And they threw up a big middle finger and did what they wanted. Uh, the, the first issue being the calories, um, the intake of the prisoners there. Canada decided that a prisoner that had to be provided with 2,595 calories per day (laughs) that's very specific yeah (laughs) so that was according to what canada had agreed to with the hague convention and the food had to be fit for consumption and it had to have nutritional qualities as well so you couldn't just give them you know stale bread 2,000 calories worth of stale bread um, so the official rations for a POW in Canada were supposed to be two pounds, this is per day, two pounds of bread, uh, three quarters of a pound of meat, one ounce of bacon, one pound of vegetables, one and a half pounds of potatoes, four ounces of jam, and two ounces each of coffee, sugar, and butter. Seems really specific. It doesn't but- sound that bad. <laughs> I don't know. I thought two pounds of bread was a lot of bread. That is a lot because bread's not that heavy. Or maybe no. it was heavier back then. Maybe it was <laughs> maybe. more dense. I don't know. <laughs> but unfortunately for these men, and I guess some women, um, there was a food rationing all across Canada because of the mm-hmm. war. And there was shortages and supply chain interruptions And so they decided to substitute the rations. So they gave them fermented cabbage instead of fresh vegetables or rice or oats instead of meat and unleavened flour for bread. And uh, in the Morrissey camp in BC, they started just giving them flour instead of bread and said, well, you can try to bake your own. Go ahead. Here's your flour. So that was the beginning of the of the unfortunate things going on in camps. Yeah. Uh, but soon there were complaints that the food was unfit for consumption. So they were really getting just the bottom of the barrel 
Um, a lot of times it was moldy, rotten, just not healthy, not not fit. Um, so the somehow they got complaints to the U.S., which under the Hague Convention was one of the protecting powers that oversaw the treatment of the camps. And, I mean, the U.S. kind of wagged a finger at Canada and said, no, don't do that. You got to treat those men properly. But nothing really came of it. But the word got out to Germany that the POWs and and the citizens were being treated like this. And they threatened to retaliate on Canada's POWs. I couldn't find any information on if there was any retaliation, but I'm assuming that Canadian POWs weren't treated as well either. But there were less Canadian citizens in German camps. So I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but there were less. Food was one cost, but in addition to paying for food for these people, which they really skimped on, they were supposed to be paying these prisoners. Since forced labor wasn't allowed, they were supposed to be given their wages. And some camps tried a bit of a workaround for paying the detainees less than what they really should have gotten. So, for example, in the Morrissey camp, this is again in BC, it's kind of near Fernie. Um, If they worked, they were paid 55 cents per day. Half of that was confiscated and held in trust for when they were released, which they were rarely given when they were actually released. 12 cents was given to the prisoner to spend at the camp canteen, and the rest was taken for a room and board. If you're not able-bodied enough to work or refuse to work, then you were only given a dollar a month. Wow, what a slap in the face. You have to pay for your own room and board for a camp that we're like interning you in? Like, Yeah, you're forced to go there, but we're going to charge you for it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, issues arose with the detainees working. They Some rioted in response to being forced to work um, because Canada was ignoring this no forced labor regulation. Um, but on the other side of it, some Canadians that were not German or Austro-Hungarian were pretty upset that the detainees were working too, because they didn't want them taking their jobs. In Fernie, the Morrissey camp that I've been talking about, it, uh, housed a lot of miners. And they were, the Germans before, they were miners before they came into the camp, and there were miners in the towns around, And both sides resented the fact that these men were being forced to do their work because they were taking the other jobs and then they weren't being paid and both sides then weren't being paid. So it was really unfair all Mm -hmm. the way around. But this situation started to change when more and more men were sent off to Europe. So soon there weren't enough men to do the work. So in 1916, the government decided to actually release some of the prisoners with the condition that they would go work in the mines and in, you know, in the logging projects and all that, because there was such a labor shortage here. And I'm sure that they would go right back to arresting the men if they had tried, if they tried to escape or, or if they didn't do their check-ins and, you know, that protocol. There was further xenophobic actions by the federal government, including requiring non-naturalized citizens, and in some case, Canadian citizens of German or Austro-Hungarian heritage, in Canada during the war, and up to 1920 
to register as enemy aliens. So this didn't go away in 1918 at the end of the war. They stuck it out for another couple of years. And when you registered, that meant that you lost your right to vote if you had been naturalized or were Canadian by birth. Uh, you lost the right to naturalize if you hadn't done that yet. And you couldn't sign up for the military. So these people were also required to complete regular check-ins with officers. They sometimes had their wages garnished. And any press from that ethnic group was really heavily censored. So a lot of these communities, the Ukrainians, the Germans, they had, you know, German newspapers or Ukrainian newspapers so they could communicate across in their languages. And basically that press was just shut down. They weren't allowed to do that anymore. And that was their life for six years. Mm. And even for years after they were shut down, any information about these internment camps just disappeared. People didn't talk about it. You couldn't fight it. You couldn't discuss it. Nothing. There was a complete publication ban. Nobody wanted to get into that. And many government records were either destroyed or lost following World War II. So I lost, you know, lost, lost. in quotes. They probably just destroyed all of it because they didn't want this coming up again. Of course. They know it's wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, everybody knew it was wrong at the time, but yeah, I mean, that was their, I don't, I don't want to say it was their duty because that's just, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. It was just horrible is what it was. But relatively recently, actually, descendants of the internees started to push for redress and restitution um, this started mostly in the 1980s, and in 2008, it took that long, 2008, mm -hmm. the Canadian government offered the Ukrainian-Canadian community an endowment fund of $10 million administered by the Ukrainian-Canadian Foundation of Taras Shevchenko for the purpose of commemorating what happened during Canada's first national internment operations and educating all Canadians about that experience. So I was out of high school by 2008 yeah. and yeah. I wasn't taking any history courses then. So I don't know, maybe the kids are learning this nowadays. I hope that they are. I have my doubts that that's part of the curriculum, but maybe. I feel like maybe it was a blip in our history book like I feel like it was something I knew but it never went into great detail of what it meant mm -hmm. yeah I mean I like I had said at the beginning there like I knew about a little bit about the Japanese internment camps during World War II but mm -hmm. even that I don't think that I learned about that in high school I think I mostly heard about that relatively recently because of the U.S. And they like their Japanese internment camps have been brought to light more, I think, partially because of George Takei. Well, I think Canada did the same thing with um, the Japanese as they, as you were just talking about with the German-Ukrainian funds. They, uh, they, I think they administered like an official apology and everything like in the t early 2000s, I think. Oh, okay. I didn't hear that, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that happened. 
But um, there is um, an old um, internment, like labor camp, just when you're coming into Kananaskis. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't see anything about that in my research. But they are doing a lot more of these memorials now, so maybe that's part of that. I know it at Morrissey. There, they've been doing some archaeology there and been trying to, you know, uncover artifacts and find out, you know, what they could about the camp itself because really everything was just shut down. Can't talk about it. Don't know anything about it. Right. Yeah, we're, we're discovering how well Canada was at that recently. Yeah, yeah, this wasn't that long ago. And, you know, you can, I mean, things have changed, but the more things change, the more things stay the same, too. So I think what we can really take away from this episode is just be nice to people. I agree. We need that in today, today's <laughs> age because it doesn't seem to be happening. No. So it just doesn't matter where people come from or who they are. Just be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I won't do a commentary on current politics. No, no, let's not get into that. Let's stick to the 1916 <laughs> debacle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's our mini-sode for today. I learned something I had never even heard of, and I'm really hoping that everybody was uh, as interesting, uh, as interested to hear it as I was to tell it and to learn about it. Yes, thank you very much. I learned something new. I had no idea that the Germans had such roots in Canada. I thought they maybe came in the latter half of the 1800s. But uh, yeah, that was great. Oh, glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We are What About the Canadians. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What About the Canadians podcast. And we'll be coming out with our next episode on March 1st. And we'll be talking about a big one coming up. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think Shauna and I have been dreading (laughs) just a nincy bit. Yeah, a little bit. But buckle up because it's going to be interesting. That's right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.